So for those of you that are new, we are in the book of Revelation. Uh, we are going through a series right now. We just short of halfway through the book. We're in the third of eight major sections. This particular section is dealing with the seven trumpets. And what we've encountered so far in this journey is we started it all off with this micro view of what God was doing in his churches, right? Remember, John gets this vision from God and he gets this this vision about seven churches, and he gets letters to write to these churches from the angel of the Lord. And ultimately, these letters speak to the churches about realities that they were dealing with then. These are commendations about things that they were doing well, and also some rebukes about the things that they needed to do better in. And then from there, we sort of went to the next phase of this vision, and we move up a little bit into the heavenlies. John gets exalted into heaven. He's with God. He's seeing things from God's perspective, and he starts to get exposed to what's God, what God's plan for creation is, his plan for redemption. And we see that through these seven seals. The scroll in the right hand of God was sealed with seven seals. And initially, John gets quite upset because nobody can open the scrolls until one is found worthy. The Daniel 7 revelation of Jesus Christ comes through. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the one who is worthy, who's been given a kingdom, who's been given all authority, takes the scroll and begins to unravel the scroll. And through that process, what we started to see was a big picture of God's entire plan. Yes, it included judgment. Yes, there's stuff that's going to be coming down the stream. But at the end of it all, God is going to redeem this world. And along with him, he's going to redeem all of us as his church. And that's exciting. And then a couple of weeks ago, we started the section that we're currently in, the section dealing with these trumpets. And what we've come to learn so far is that these trumpets are the warning cries of God to this earth. They're God ringing out the sort of war cries saying, people, you need to listen because something's coming. And if you're not prepared for it, you're going to suffer. And so in these trumpets, God is trying to get humankind's attention. The unbelievers, the lost, those that haven't paid any attention to God. He's trying to rouse them to come alive and to wake up and say, maybe there is something more than me just living on this earth. Maybe there is something more important, more powerful existing out there. And hopefully they'll start searching and find the king of the universe. Then what we've also learned is that our prayers have played a part in all of this. This is not just God sitting up there dishing out or rolling out judgments after judgments. Our prayers collectively have ascended to God. When I say our prayers, I'm talking about the church's prayers. We saw that in seal 5 with the blood of the martyrs. We saw that at the beginning of the seven trumpets as our prayers were mingled with Jesus' intercession. These prayers rise up to God and as a result, God's plan starts moving forward through Jesus Christ. We're going to talk about prayer this morning again. And then, of course, if you don't interpret Revelations the way I do or the book of Revelation, then you're going to disagree with this point. But let me just tell you that what I've noticed and what I see, and this is not something we need to fight over. So if you are a visitor here, don't fight over this stuff. This is an interpretation issue. What I see is that we see similar events unfolding through all of the different aspects of these visions and these revelations. The seven seals have got a lot in common with the seven trumpets. And it leads me to believe, according to my interpretation of the book of Revelation, that we're not seeing different events. But instead, we're seeing one event, which is God's plan for this earth, God's plan for redemption, God's plan for humanity unfold, albeit from different varying perspectives. We're looking at it on the spiral. I keep saying it's this spiral approach to what's happening. We're looking at God's plan from different areas. And every time we look at it from another area, we see things that we never saw before. We're exposed to areas that we didn't understand, and we get a little bit more insight. And then finally, we realize that these final three trumpets are very different to the first four trumpets. We read this last week in Revelations 8 and verse 13. John says this, Then I looked and I heard an eagle crying. And then he says, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blasts of the other trumpet. 
that the three angels are about to blow. You see, not only did Trumpet 5, which is what we covered last week, kick off a set of more severe judgments. And we know they're more severe because, A, it was severe when we read it about these weird locust things that are going to torment and blind humanity, these demonic forces. But what we also realize is the angel refers to these next three trumpets as woes. They are bad news for humanity. It also represented a shift in the way God was going to bring his plan to fruition. Now, I say God bringing his plan because we have to understand that God is the ultimate authority. There is no secondary authority, no third authority. There is nobody else in the, in the history of the universe and in all everything that we know and even don't know that can ever usurp the hand of God. God is in authority and his agents in these three trumpets have changed. I know it's hard for us to sometimes listen to and understand, but guess what? God has released the demonic forces of this world through Satan to bring blindness and torment in the world. That's what we discussed last week. And what we'll find out this morning, because these judgments are all grouped together, judgment 6 and judgment 7 are going to be worse. If you are a visitor, you're probably thinking, man, we picked the right Sunday to come to church. <laughs> they are going to be worse, and they're going to continue in this thread of de demonic oppression. And so turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 9. We're going to unpack trumpet 6 this morning, and we're going to start from verse 13. But I'd like to pray real quick before we do. Heavenly Father, uh, I mean, I always struggle, Lord, to, to preach your word in a way, Lord, that is going to bring you, you and you alone the glory. When I say I struggle, Lord, I'm praying that that's what would happen, Lord. I pray, Lord, that every single word that I speak this morning will be seasoned with your grace, that every heart in this room this morning will hear what you have to say to them, that this wouldn't be clever ideas or great strategy or philosophy, but this would be your very word that will not return void. I thank you that it would take root in all of us. And even as we discuss heavy things and heavy topics, Lord, that we would see that in it all, we are victorious in Christ because we are more, more than conquerors in you, Jesus. And so I pray this morning that you would lift our spirits, that you would raise our eyes towards heaven. If anything else, Lord, that we would have a clearer picture of the mighty nature of your character, your justice, your mercy, and your love, Lord. Love for us and love for this world. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So verse 13 of Revelation starts like this. It says, Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God. So the voice that sounds from the horns of the altar, we're going to un unpack who that is. But what John is seeing now is an unfolding of this vision. It's, a, it's the next phase. It's another aspect of the spiral. He's at another place. And it brings us to our first point, and that is this. As our prayers continue to increase... The church's prayers, God's people's prayers continue to increase. Judgments continue to fall. We're back in the heavenly throne room. This place where the tabernacle on this earth and the temple was modeled after. And so what we're thrown into is a little bit of Old Testament imagery. It's the golden altar that stands before God. There's a picture of this tabernacle this time. I'm sure it's here. Hopefully. There we go. I keep getting that wrong. But there's the golden altar. That circle around it represents the altar that's in question this morning. And what we'll realize if you've been paying attention is this altar that's being mentioned now in trumpet six is the same altar we heard about in trumpet number one. Just before we got to the first trumpet, we heard about the altar of incense. The altar of incense and the golden altar here are one and the same thing. And it raises some questions. Why is it mentioned again? Why is it significant in this context? And what voice is it exactly that's coming from the four horns of this altar? 
And to answer those questions, I want us just to take a little bit of a journey backwards. Remember how before Seal 5 or during Seal 5, we heard about the blood of the martyrs. I spoke about it as I opened up this morning. How the blood of the saints was poured out at the base of the altar. And how those saints were crying out to God. And what we realized is before the blood of the saints could reach God the Father, they had to pass through the altar. And that altar was important because once a year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would come in there and he would sprinkle the blood of a bull that he had slain for the sins of Israel on top of the altar. The significance is the cries of the saints can only reach God as they pass through the blood of Jesus Christ, the final atoning sacrifice for us. The same applies to us today. We are worthy and righteous before God the Father because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. We're not worthy because we are religious. We're not worthy because we are good. We're not worthy because we do the things that we do for God. We are worthy for one reason only, and that is because Jesus shed his blood and made us worthy. And then in seal, um, in, in trumpet number one, as these trumpets are about to unfold, we hear about these uh, prayers rising up to God, and to the prayers were, was added the, the incense. And because the incense was added, it made its way to God the Father, and because of that, God the Father responds with these trumpet warnings, and how that incense represented the intercession of Jesus Christ. And so again, we're reminded that our prayers cannot get to God the Father on their own because we in ourselves are sinful human beings. But because Jesus intercedes on our behalf, our prayers reach God. And so what it's telling us is that something now in this text is happening. Something similar. Another offering of prayer is rising up to God. God's people pray continuously and all the time. I don't know about you, but I'm always praying. Whether it's in the car, whether it's at home, God's people have been praying. God's people should be praying. God's people must continue to be praying for the rest of eternity. And it's not just those of us that are alive today whose prayers are rising up. The prayers of all the saints that have gone before us continue to rise up to God. And like the blood of Jesus and the prayers of the saints, I mean the prayers of us as the saints mixed with the incense are being brought to to God the Father this time. They are flowing through the altar, the golden altar, and it represents Jesus Christ. And so I believe the voice that we hear coming from the four horns of the altar is none none other than Jesus Christ's voice. And he is now responding. These are not the the cries, sorry, of a church that can't wait for the judgments to get worse. These are not the cries of a church saying, Lord, bring revenge on the people of this world because we're tired of them. Notice when the martyrs cried out, they cried out for vindication, but it wasn't their vindication, it was the vindication of God. They want people to see who God truly is. Those are the cries that are ascending to the Father. They are the cries of those before us, those us today, and those that will exist tomorrow for the end of the sufferings of both the world and the church. They are the cries of God's people who continues to say day by day as we pray the Lord's Prayer, Lord, let your kingdom come and let your will be done. They are the cries for God's kingdom to inhabit this world. And because of that, Jesus responds. And that brings us to our second point. And that is this, the demonic in response to our cries will be released in greater measure. I know that sounds like an oxymoron, but it isn't. In fact, you'll hear it now. And so for end of verse 13, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God saying to the sixth angel who had, a, who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. Remember how trumpets one through four only ever affected one third of what they were sort of delegated over. 
Trumpet one was the judgment on land. Trumpet two was the judgment on seed. Trumpet three was the judgment of the rivers. Trumpet four was the judgment of the cosmos. But each of those judgments only ever affected one third of those particular things. Well, something similar here is happening, except the difference this time is that this judgment is targeted, like last week's judgment, at humanity. And what it's telling us is that while all of us have experienced something of the judgments of God already, for example, the church is today in parts of the world facing real, actual persecution. I know it's hard for us to believe when we're living in Lakeway that that actually happens, but believe me when I tell you there are people today who are facing persecution, and so something of the judgments of God is already being felt. Something of seal one, the gospel riding out with Jesus Christ and the red horse, the, the four horsemen of the apocalypse is following after. It's the persecution of God's church. Something of it is here. The world, believe me, understands what natural disasters are. If anyone's ever lived in Houston, you'll know them more than most, right? And so there's this reality that there is something of the judgments of God already happening and manifesting themselves in this world. But I want to tell you this morning, and this is not good news, this judgment that we're speaking about now is going to release something so severe we've never experienced it before. This is speaking about a severe time of conflict, something that is bigger than anything any one of us have gone through in and of ourselves and anything we've seen the world go through up until this point. It is a severe time of pain and hardship. Now, I want to say this. Remember how in Trumpet 5, the demons were prevented from killing mankind. They had the ability to blind and they had the ability to torment. Sometimes they would torment people up to the point where they wanted to die. Well, in this case, there is no prescription. There is no, you cannot kill. This time, these demons are released to kill. Now, you might be thinking, but how do you know these are demons? How can we say definitively that these are actual demons that are bringing this all about? Well, I don't know anywhere in Scripture where we hear of any angelic host, and I'm talking about God's host, those that serve the Lord, being bound. They're not in chains, friends. They are free to do the will of God. These angels are bound. They're being restrained. They have been tied down by God and prevented from doing what they only know how to do, and that is to destroy, friends. These particular angels that we read about in this text are part of the fallen sons of God, the B'nai Elohim that we spoke about last week, the ones that we were introduced to in Genesis chapter 6, in Job chapter 4, the ones that we read about in Psalm 82, the sons of God that rebelled against God himself. These beings have been restrained by God for a specific time and for a specific purpose. And we don't know when that time is. None of us do. We know it's predetermined by God, but we have no idea when it is. And I want to say this to you, that many people throughout the ages have believed they've been living in this trumpet. I can tell you now that when the first world war came rolling around, people that followed God probably said, there we go, here it is, here's this trumpet, it's, round, it's, it's, it's sounding right now. Or when we got to World War II, they thought, that's it, this trumpet is, round, is rounding, resounding right now. Or when we deal with all these big catastrophes in the world, or these wars, or we see all of the stuff happening, or the genocides that have gone before us, everyone's thinking, this is the time, this is the judgment. What I want to say this morning is far more important than when this happens. Because the truth is, none of us know, but believe me, we'll know when it does. The more important thing is to be ready for when it happens. And that brings us to our third point. The reason we need to be ready, and I'm speaking to us as the church here this morning, is because this judgment is going to affect the church. See, unlike Trumpet 5, where... God's people were sealed and the, 
the, the tormenting demonic forces were not allowed to touch God's people, which represented us as the believers of this world, those that have been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, those who serve the Lord, who love the Lord, who, don't, who aren't always perfect, by the way. Just because you, you have sin in your life doesn't mean you're not sealed by God, just to make it very clear. Yes, we should strive to become more like Christ, but none of us in this room are perfect. And like before seal seven, before the final judgment, we hear about the 144,000 and how they're protected. There is no indication in this text, there is no distinction in this judgment that anybody is prevented from suffering in it. In other words, the church alongside the world will suffer. Now if you remember seal six, which was Armageddon, it was the end of the world, the rolling up of the scroll, essentially the prophecy of Isaiah. He saw everything just coming to nothing. God was going to bring judgment to this earth. It's the end of everything. Nobody was protecting that. However, having said that, the children of God will have hope in that time because it's a signification that God is coming back, that his plans are being manifested. And so even though this will affect the church, we are a church to have hope even in the midst of crisis. Because what it's telling us is these birth pains are necessary for the final kingdom to arrive. And so unlike the world who will be hopeless, we are hopeful because Christ is coming back one day. And so humanity in total will suffer, us along with the world. But because of the severity of this judgment, I want to say this this morning, that there is a sense in the text that some of this, some of this judgment is not just directed at the world, it's specifically directed at God's church. And I want to say that's not God's intent. God is not the one directing this judgment to the church. But because the forces of darkness are behind this, they are directing something of the severity of this judgment towards us as believers. And I say that because of where these angels are released from. The book of Revelation is full of important symbolism. It's full of important details. In verse 14 it says, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. This location, the Euphrates River, has got so much depth to it and so much meaning to it. In the original plan from God for the nation of Israel, the Euphrates was always meant to be the true northern border of Israel. Genesis 15 verse 18, before Israel even existed, existed God says this to Abraham, before he's even Abraham. He says, on that day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham saying to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt, the Nile, to the great river, the river of Euphrates. This is not just a geopolitical border in God's mind. This is not a place where you can just separate one nation from the other nation. God is not trying to say, this is where you play and this is where they play. There's a lot more depth going on behind what God says because in fact, this border, instead of being geopolitical, it is spiritual in nature. It's a spiritual boundary that separates God's people from the wicked nations of the world. And to fully understand that, we have to take a journey all over the place to understand what God is saying. You see, in Genesis chapter 11, when we encounter the story of the Tower of Babel, the text says this, So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the earth, speaking of humanity. Now, if you remember what humanity did at this point, they started to build this tower. Now, to be clear, they weren't bu building the Burj Al Khalifa. Okay? They weren't trying to build a stairway to heaven. What they were building is a pyramid-like structure. Why? Because they wanted to worship false gods, and in doing that, they wanted to become gods themselves. And they left the building of the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel because the Lord, because there the Lord confused the languages of the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Humanity was united on one common objective, and that was to become gods themselves. And so God disrupts the plan. He confuses the languages, and he creates the first nations of the world. And he sends them all over the world. 
These are nations that want to follow false gods, that are worshipping these fallen sons of God. And then in Deuteronomy 32 verse 8, it explains a little bit more about what happened here. It says, when the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance. Their inheritance was what they always wanted. They wanted to worship these gods. God said, fine, you can go and worship these gods. When he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the people according to the number of the sons of God, the B'nai Elohim. These fallen angels were given dominion and power and authority over nations of the world, friends. And I'm saying all of this to you so that we can understand that there is a spiritual dimension to these angels coming from the river Euphrates. Every time throughout Old Testament scripture, whenever God was going to bring judgment against the nation of Israel, it always came from the north. For example, Jeremiah 1 verse 14, Then the Lord said to me, Out of the north disaster shall be let loose upon all the inhabitants of the land. Or Jeremiah 6.22, Thus says the Lord, Behold, a people is coming from the north country. A great nation is stirring from the furthest part of the earth. Babylon, Assyria, Persia. All of the nations that conquered Israel were not just people on horses with big swords and big catapults. They were fueled and forced and led by demonic hosts. Why? Because once there was no nation of Israel. There was never a God's people. After Babel, there was no Israel. The whole world was divided up and given over to the demonic realm. But then God says, I'm going to choose one man. And in that one man, I'm going to place my spirit. And I'm going to make myself a nation. And then that nation is going to conquer these nations to show everybody that there is a God who is far higher than all of these fallen gods. It's called the cosmic geographical worldview. It's a worldview that we should have as believers because we are not waging war against the flesh. Yes, the demons and the forces of darkness will use the flesh against us, but that's not who our enemy is. They are. And so the sense here is that God is warning his church. He's saying, friends, when this comes, understand one thing, that just as it was in the beginning, Satan wants to overthrow mankind, it will happen again. And it's going to come through us as the church. It's going to attack us. We need to get ready for severe times of persecution. And so what do we do in those times? Do we just throw up our hands and say, oh, no, Lord. Mark was sharing a story with me before this meeting, and he was telling me about these missionaries that go to these persecuted nations, Iran, Syria, Iran, Syria and Persia, which is now Iraq, Right? And he was talking about how these missionaries feel so inadequate in going to these nations to share the gospel because they don't know what they're going to do. They're fearing for their lives, literally. I mean, they are under severe persecution. You cannot preach the gospel. You will die for preaching the gospel. Yet when they arrive, what they realize is people there are coming to them saying, I had a dream. And in the dream was a man clothed in white and he gave me great peace. And all of a sudden they can start quoting scripture. They've never read the Bible. You see, friends, when we are persecuted, when we are under the thumb of persecution, the power of God is so powerful in our lives. It becomes so manifest in us. We have this comfortable idea of Christianity. And you know what? I think that's part of the reason why we don't feel the Spirit of the Lord moving the way we do. But when you're out there, when the world is against you, when the armies of this heavenly host here on this earth, the fallen heavenly host is pointing their guns at you, believe me, I want to tell you, you will feel the power of the Lord in you. And so right now, as we look to this time of persecution coming, it's not a time for us to say, well, that's it. You know, let's just go burrow into our bunkers or go buy big ranches or go live out in the middle of nowhere or let's go find a place in Antarctica if you believe it exists. Or some people don't. I don't, know, I don't understand that. But I know it's there for sure. It's time to say, Lord, prepare me for what's coming. Help me to be a witness in those days that I can take as many people to the kingdom on my way out as I can. Hallelujah. 
Verse 16, the number of the mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. John sees this mighty army before him. Numerically, it's 200 million troops. Now, whether you choose to read that literally or you don't choose that literally, I think we can agree on one thing. This is an army so big that it's going to be difficult for anyone to count. This is a mighty force, friends. This is not a ragtag bunch of conscripts that they've tried to recruit from the, the gutters of the streets. This is a mighty force. They are arrayed. They are disciplined. They are ready. This is a legion, friends. And so as much as we have to understand that persecution is going to affect the church, what we have to understand is that the church needs to get ready for war. Verse 17, and this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates, the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur. And the heads of the horses were like lion's heads and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. John goes to great lengths to describe this host that he's seeing before him. And what we notice is much like those locust scorpions that we heard about last week, this army is ready to fight. They're not sitting down. They're not playing backgammon. They're not going to the movies. They are fighting. And this description, the sort of depth of the description, just emphasizes how hideous and ferocious these beings truly are. Now over the years, many people have interpreted both the fifth trumpet and this trumpet as signifying the machines or the m mechanics of modern warfare. Whether it's scorpion or locust looking, look like helicopters or horses that look like tanks. And while I have no doubt in my mind that those modern machinery, machine, modern warfare machines will be used in this great conflict. Those things are really not what's important. What is important here for us to understand is that this demon horde comes to do two things. The first thing it does is it wants to bring destruction. Breastplates that look not only like fire and sulfur, which in the Old Testament was called brimstone, but the fact that they breathe it out, out of their mouths reminds us of the total destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Except that judgment came from God, right? This comes not from God. But the truth is, it will be total. It will be final. It will be finished. What they destroy, they destroy, friends. They're not yet to play around. What they also bring is this ability to devour people. They have heads like lions. Think about that. When a lion kills its prey, it doesn't sit there and look at it and go, oh, it's so nice, so beautiful. Man, it's great. Let me just go away now. It devours it. Lions are built to kill and to eat. These things, in a sense, are feeding off our flesh. Friends, they will devour whomever they come into contact. And it raises a concern because knowing what we know about this horde and its purposes, and if we consider the battle readiness of the church today, I think we're in trouble. I say that because while the enemy is organizing and preparing and getting ready to unleash its attack, the church in general is oblivious. I want to say this, not many of us in, are able to uh, do this all the time, live with a spiritual worldview. We're often consumed with the things of the world, right? Because we live in the world. And often we're not even thinking about what's going on around us. But this is a call for us to remember that we're living in the supernatural realm, friends. That there is a war coming. We need to stop being oblivious. It's almost as if in some senses we've allowed ourselves to be lulled to sleep by an enemy. He's been whispering sweet nothings in our ears and he's been distracting us. And I say that because while the enemy prepares, what the church does is fight and divide. Right. While the enemy sharpens its blades, the church is more interested in its comfort than it is in God's kingdom. While the enemy focuses on all of those people they're going to devour, the church spends its time coming up with formulas and ways that we can attract more people to come to church instead of discipling the people we have in church. Leonard Ravenhill, 
has a quote, and I'm going to read it. It says, the church of today is more fashion than passion, more pathetic than prophetic, more superficial than supernatural. I want to say this. I'm not judging or condemning. I'm not here to throw stones outside of this building. I'm here to call us to attention this morning. I am this morning repenting. Every day, every morning, every moment of my life, I have to repent and deal with my own wicked heart from falling into the track, trap of seeking my desires over his desires, of seeking my comfort over his call, or seeking my own compulsion to please an audience of many instead of living for an audience of one. And if that quote offends you, I want to say this. Perhaps you, like me, have got some repenting to do. And the reason I say that is God offends our minds to reveal our hearts. Verse 18. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed. By the fire and the smoke and the sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents with heads. And by means of them, they wound. Point number five, I believe a great deception is coming. There's no doubt that the fire and the sulfur, John actually refers to them as plagues now, is going to kill one third of, of humanity. But I think that what is being alluded to, because of the power that exists in the tails of the horses and not just their heads, is that these demons have the ability to destroy both physically and spiritually. I say spiritually because... The fact that these tails represent serpent heads that wound tells us a few things. It tells me that before physical death will come on people, these beings will have deceived humanity to the point that they don't believe in God. Throughout scripture, we see this imagery associated with snakes and serpents and asps. And every time we hear these sort of illustrations, it's always talking about deception. And if we consider the first serpent that we ever encounter in the Bible, Satan himself, who is the great deceiver of this world, is going to fall under huge deception. And I know we don't have to look really far to see it. I said this last week. We live in a world that I believe is so deceived today, I, can hardly, I can't even understand how it can get more deceived. But there is a sense that it's going to become even more deceived. And I think we're seeing some of that happen. But let me say this, I want us to take our eyes off the world because I don't believe this deception is only targeted at unbelievers. I believe this deception is targeted at the church. 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 1 says, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them. You know what that means? It means that people will be saved and then they will choose to walk away from Christ. Denying the master that paid the price, denying the one who redeemed them, denying the one whose blood was shed for them at the cross of Calvary, they will move away from God. And then he says this, bringing upon themselves swift destruction and many will follow their sensuality and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. Friend, Peter is talking about the church. He's not talking about the world. And he says, many will follow them. I don't want to follow them. I don't want to be that person. If I ever am, leave the church, please. Matthew 24, Jesus himself said this, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ. Now before you think we're waiting for the Antichrist to come say, I am Jesus, the Christ means anointed one. What it's saying is that many will come and say, I have the capacity to speak for God. I can tell you what God wants to hear. We've seen them throughout the ages, these people that start to speak on behalf of God. You can hear God for yourselves. Please read your own Bible. Don't let me tell you what God is saying to you. 
And they will lead many astray. And you will hear, hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed. Church, be not alarmed. For this must take place by the end. But the end is not yet. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All of these things are but the beginnings of the birth pains. There is something coming, friends, and it is glorious. We've seen many deceptions take root in the church. There's a lot of them. We really couldn't spend the entire morning going through all the ways the church has been deceived because it will take us the entire day. But I do want to say this, that there is one that I see as being extremely dangerous in the church today, and I want to mention it briefly. I've spoken about it before in another series that we did, and it's called Progressive Christianity. It's this type of Christianity by name only because it's not Christianity. It's heresy that's been born out of a desire for the church to become more culturally relevant, to become more woke, or to become more attractive to the world around it, thinking that the more we can become like the world, the more that we can model the world, the easier it will be for the world to get saved. Friends, we are called to live in the world, but we are not of the world. The moment the church becomes the world, we've lost every single bit of authority we've ever had. We are salt and we are light. We are called to be different. We are not called to be the same, friends. It's a church that's sold out on this lie of postmodernism, the apocalyptic world of your truth versus my truth. A world where there is no longer any fundamental truth. A church where the Bible is no longer authoritative. Because after all, the Bible, this word of God was written by men. And so it's fallible. And so what we'll do is we'll treat it like a trinket. We'll put it on our shelves and we'll look at it as if it's great philosophy. But not everything in the Bible is really meant for us. I believe in the totality of Scripture, friends. From Genesis to Revelations, every word has been penned, not by man, but by the authority of the Holy Spirit, friends. This Bible is true. It's the church that believes that the cross is nothing more than a protest symbol. It's a church that says Jesus would never have had to die for the sins of the world because God the Father would never demand his own son to die. What kind of father would do that to his son? Instead, Jesus was showing the world how we need to love everyone. And while, yes, Jesus was talking about love on the cross, it wasn't that kind of love. Because what that love leads us to believe is that the gospel is no longer necessary. Because if God loves the world so much that Jesus never had to die, then guess what? Anybody goes to heaven. And so no longer is Jesus the, the, the rock by which people will be shattered against. He becomes another stepping stone on a journey of life. What's clear throughout the book of Revelation, and I hope you've seen this, and what you'll see throughout the Bible is the book of Revelation is inspired by the Holy Spirit. It is under divine inspiration. The Bible is true, friends. And what I can tell you, without a shadow of a doubt, because I have been to hell myself, and it's a long story, but I'll tell you that another day, hell is real, friends. Satan is real, and his job is to try and make us believe he isn't real. The more he can convince us that he's not real, that he's not dangerous, that everyone goes to heaven, the more deceived the world becomes, and we're starting to see that all around us. What this world needs, friends, is not a progressive church, a woke church, or an attractive church. It needs a church that will be able to prevail against the gates of hell. Matthew 16, Peter, on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The church needs to rise up. We need to take back what's ours. We need to take back the authority. We need to believe in the truth of Scripture. We need to believe in the power of the Holy Spirit. And we need to take that message to the world. Verse 20, the rest of mankind who were killed by these plagues did not re repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshipping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murder or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Last point, and we're going to close here. The band can come up. It seems like hard hearts tend to only get harder. 
See, I wish I could tell you that at the end of this judgment and said, and everybody realized what they did wrong, and everybody came back to God and worshiped God and got in their faces and said, Lord, forgive us, for we sin terribly against you. Unfortunately, that's not what happens. It's almost as if what happened to Pharaoh is happening to the world. Do you remember how plague after plague after plague, Pharaoh's heart became harder and harder and harder and harder? The world is becoming a harder and harder place to reach, friends, not an easier place to reach. It seems like the world also is not just a rebellious one. But at this point of the text, it seems like the world almost loses its, its, its ability to even repent. It becomes an old school word called impenitent. It cannot repent. And it's this impenitence that brings about the bowls of God's judgment in Revelation chapter 15 and 16. And it's this impenitence that ultimately brings the final judgment to the world. And you're probably thinking, but, you know, well, then what's the point? To know Christ and to make Him known. But nobody's going to hear us. Nobody will listen. If no one's going to repent, then why do we exist? Why do we have this commandment in Scripture to go and tell the world about Jesus, to go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all His commands, because one day He's coming back. Why do we have to do that, Marco, if the world's going to become un unrepentant? I'll tell you why is because we are not at that point yet. And let me tell you, even at that point, when all of this is going wrong, the commandment that Jesus left us is still true. Because as much as most of the world will reject Him, there are those who God has called by name, friends, who He has revealed Himself to. And we have no idea who those people are. We don't know where they live. We don't know what they look like. We don't know what they speak like. But He's got those people out there. And there are more people in this city for us to reach. You know, and Paul, on his missionary trip, God says to him, Paul, I want to encourage you because there's more for you to reach in this city. There is more for us, friends. We are not at the point yet that we cannot reach people. There is time, and that tells me that there is still a job for us to do. Paul says this in Romans 13, and I want to thank Mark for bringing it up last week. In verse 11, it says, Besides this, you know the time. Church, you know the time. God's told us plainly. He's not telling us this to scare us. He's not telling us this so we can hide away. He's telling us this because if there ever was a time for boldness, it's now. That the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. In other words, he's saying, wake up. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Paul wrote this 2,000 years ago. I can tell you definitively and with truth that the salvation of God, the final redemption is closer to us than it was to him. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So let us, and this is important, cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Just to be clear, the armor of light is Jesus Christ himself. He is our armor. What Paul's saying is, it's time for us to let go of the creature comforts and making, stop making those things the idols in our lives. It's time to let go of all the desires that pull us in a million directions and make Christ the central figure. It's time that we realize that while this army is amassed for battle, we need to still get out of our pajamas. We need to let go of the pajamas. We need to let go of all the stuff that's consuming us. And we need to get on the horses and we need to be ready to battle. Because there's a fightful day coming and we can do one of two things. We can choose to live like God doesn't exist and carry on with our lives as if everything's going to be okay and look for all the things that the world has to offer us or we can choose to live like God exists. And what that means is we live by the same things that break his heart will break ours. We live 
Like there's a world going to hell and we have the answer. We live like there's a mission, there's a mandate, there is a fight to be had and we are part of that journey. Friends, it's time to pick up our swords, our shields and to fight. To know Christ and to make him known is a great vision statement. But it's the truth of what we've been called to do. Not just tomorrow or the day after that. Right now and every day from this moment. Because if this is all true, which I believe it to be, one day it's going to be harder still. But we'll have to do it regardless. I can I ask you to stand? The Bible says that there's only one way for mankind to be saved. And that is through the blood of Jesus. And I want to say this this morning, I'm not here to condemn anyone. As I said, most of the time I'm trying to preach it myself because I've got so much work to do in my own life. But I do want to say that that path to salvation, Jesus Christ, is enough to cover the sins in our lives. He was enough, He is enough, and He always will be enough. The path to Jesus Christ is not a path of laying down you know, everything on day one and becoming perfect before He'll save us. It's a position of where He takes us as we are. And the sense that I have this morning is that if you don't know Jesus, you need to get to know Him. And how you get to know Him is you just say, Lord, I believe what you did on the cross, that your punishment was final, that your blood is enough. And because of that, I trust in you, Jesus. Not in me, not in the systems of this world, not in what I can do, but in you. And if you do that and you believe that, you will be saved. And then the Bible says that you need to repent. You need to turn away from your life and go towards Jesus. In other words, become more like Him. It's not an instant process. You don't become like Him overnight. But the sense I have this morning is that a lot of us this morning have some you know, stuff in our life that has prevented us from living to the fullness of what God has called us to be. And again, I'm speaking of myself primarily because I know it happens in my life. And so if you this morning just want to you know, repent of anything, whatever it is that's just held you back or is keeping you back, Repentance is not shame, friends. We so often think that when we repent before people, we'll be ashamed. No, repentance is the opposite. Repentance is running to Jesus, not away from Him. Condemnation is shame. And there, are no, there is no condemnation for those of us who are saved in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so no matter where you are, what you've done, what you haven't done, there is grace here this morning. Jesus wants to restore us. He wants his bride to get whiter and whiter as he comes back in the bride dress to become cleaner and cleaner and more purified. He wants his bride to be the bride that he's going to marry one day. And it's going to take us every moment of every day to repent for the things that we need to repent of. So if anyone needs prayer, we want to open up the front chair. There will be a bunch of us up here to pray. If it's just standing with you, if it's for specific things, if you don't want to tell us what it is, you don't have to. You can just come up here and say, pray with me. But I want to encourage you, if you do feel that there are areas in your life that you just want to line up with God's Word, then please come up to the front. And if not, I'm going to invite you into one last song. Worship our King. Maybe just pray to Him directly and ask Him to deal with your heart. Love you, church.